Well, last week we began a sermon series that will run for the first seven weeks of the year called Grace DNA. The goal of this series is to unpack one simple question for our church. Who are we? Why are we here? I said it was simple. It's not easy, though. It's simple because it's one of the most basic questions any of us can ask, but it's not easy to answer. How do you even begin to describe why this church exists, or any church? How do you explain what we're here to do and how we're going to go about it? And even if we can start to grapple with these questions spiritually and theologically and start to apply it organizationally and structurally, even if... um, Oh, then we still have to ask the same question personally. Why are you here and not out there or anywhere else that you could be this morning? What do you want to get out of church? What do you want to put into church? The way that we're beginning to answer these questions here at Grace in this series, at least from the 30,000 foot view, is that Grace Church exists to love God, love one another, and love our valley. And today I want to start looking at the first of these three great branches of love, our call to love God. But love is an interesting thing. We believe it stands at the very center of the Christian life, but it's certainly not unique to the Christian life. The opposite, actually. Everyone almost universally agrees that love is the goal of human life. So the ancient philosopher Plato wrote, the madness of love is the greatest of heaven's blessings. Gandhi wrote, where there's love, there's life. Homer Simpson himself, in his beautiful love letter to his wife as he lay in a coma, uh, wrote, dearest Marge, though my body cannot move, I will love you as long as my heart still beats and my brain still brains. And love, it turns out, is even what makes Subaru a Subaru. The Bible falls right in line with every great and mediocre ethical teacher, musician, poet, and ad agency throughout human history. 1 Corinthians 13, we read, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Jesus says to his disciples in John 13, This this command I give to you, love one another. This isn't exactly groundbreaking news. This has all been said before. So if we're trying to get down to what makes Grace Church, Grace Church, and our mission and our vision and our hopes for the future, and we center everything we do on love, how does that make us any different from a car company or a cartoon show? Well, to see how Christianity is any different from any other call to love in the world, we've got to press it a bit and ask the follow-up question. Everyone agrees the goal is love. But how? How do you grow towards love? How do we grow in our concern and care for those around us? How do we grow in our delight of the truth? How do we love God more? Is it a switch we can just turn on? Can I decide to wake up in the morning and love better? And it's right here that Christianity offers a totally unique and compelling answer among all the other faiths, philosophies, ethical teachings in our world, Jesus' command to love was not groundbreaking. But how he shows us to grow in love is totally one of a kind. 
Jesus shares the secret of how to grow in love with guests at a dinner party. And this secret is not only groundbreaking, but life-changing for all who take it to heart. There are three characters in the story we just heard read a minute ago. They each give us an insight into love. The sinful woman, Simon the Pharisee, and Jesus. Or how to love, how not to love, and the key to growing in love. Let's take a look at all three for a few minutes this morning and then ask how this might all apply to us in the mission of Grace Church. All right, so first, sinful woman, verses 36 to 38. This is how to love. In Luke 7, Jesus was invited as the guest of honor to a meal at Simon's house. Now, dinner parties were a little different then than they are today. Depending on the house, there could have been a large table, maybe in a, in a U-shape. And the invited guests would recline towards the table, propped up on one elbow with their feet away from the table. The servants would bring food and drink while they talked about the major issues of the day. These meals would have been semi-public events. People could sort of come in and and mill around on the boundaries of the room, listening in on the conversation. All kinds of people could wander through the front door. And at Simon's house, one very interesting guest showed up this day. To set the scene, imagine you're invited to a family's home for Sunday lunch after church. Now, this family is a respected, um, you know, uh, family in the community, the kind of family everyone knows of, even if they don't know them personally, and no one has anything bad to say about them. He's a successful businessman and very generous. She runs a nonprofit and a soccer mom of the year. And by the way, they're very, very wealthy. Now, add another layer. On this particular Sunday, a very famous guest preacher has just preached at the service, and he's going to be the guest of honor at lunch. Pick your celebrity pastor of choice and insert him into the story here. Lunch is going great. It's fun to be on the inner circle of this gathering. The conversation's been fascinating. But just as you ask for another helping of egg casserole, through the front door, without knocking, walks a slightly tipsy woman. Remember, it's one in the afternoon. She's in a low-cut dress and a short skirt. The hostess freezes. The room goes silent. She's a slobbery mess, mascara running down her face. She ignores everyone in the room. She makes a beeline for this visiting pastor. She wraps her arms around his neck and says loud enough for everyone in the room to hear, I am yours forever. Will you have me? I mean, what do you do now? It's just stunned silence. This is super awkward, to say the least. I mean, does this well-respected pastor know this woman? And if so, how exactly does he know this woman? You see where the questions lead. In Luke 7, 37, we read, A woman of the city who was a sinner wandered right into this respectable dinner party hosted by Simon the Pharisee. We don't know for certain what kind of sinner this woman was, but she was well known for it. It was public. And other hints throughout the passage point to a pretty good guess. She was the town prostitute. She heads straight for Jesus, and she treats him with a shocking amount of intimacy. Letting down your hair in that culture is what a woman did in the bedroom, not the dining room. Her tears fall on his feet. She wipes the dirt away with her own hair. She kisses him. But Jesus sees through the awkwardness. He doesn't just notice her body, as so many men in her life have, 
over the years, but he sees all the way into her heart, into her spirit. He recognizes what this woman is risking, what cost this woman is paying to be near him. He knows that as she pours out the ointment from her flask, she's pouring out the most valuable thing she owns. Uh, This woman, whose name we do not know, is laying her livelihood and her identity at Jesus' feet, literally on his feet. She's forsaking her past life and her past sin. She's throwing every future hope that she has on a relationship with him. And she's essentially saying, I'm yours forever. Will you be mine? And it's this woman, this woman of more than questionable moral standing, who shows us what it means to love God with our whole heart. She is committed to Jesus without regard for the consequences. Her first concern is not the opinion of those around her, but the opinion of the one man in the room who she knows loves her, her Savior Jesus. She loves Jesus with a singularity of mind and heart. She cares for him. She spends lavishly on him this um, ointment that she poured out would have been worth a year's worth of her life savings. She's emotionally and financially committed to him. She's forgotten herself and is devoted only to him. In other words, this prostitute is a model disciple. Everyone else in that room could only see the morally corrupt woman making an extremely awkward scene. Jesus saw the truth, her great love for God. Now, I wonder if we would have been able to see what Jesus saw that day if we were at that dinner party. And I wonder if we can see what Jesus sees today in those around us. That was the woman. That's how to love. Next, we see Simon the Pharisee in verses 39 and 40, how not to love. How starkly this woman is contrasted at the dinner party with the respectable and moral upstanding Simon. Simon is a leader in the religious community and a man of some means if he can host such an event like this. And his opening words towards both the woman and Jesus are words of judgment. Look again at verse 39. He says, if this man were a prophet, referring to Jesus, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, notice his language right out of the gates of ought and should have. When Simon encounters others, his natural eye is to see what they're not. He doesn't notice the good in them, the value in them simply for existing and being created in God's image. He doesn't enter into new relationships expectantly looking for the ways that God is already at work in their lives. No, his first words towards Jesus are, well, he should have known better. And his first words towards the woman are words of judgment. She's a sinner. Jesus lacks knowledge. She lacks virtue. Compared to me, everyone here seems to be lacking something. His language betrays his real view of the world. Simon is a man who loves religious rules. Rule following was in his bones. It was his strength. And he relates to others on the basis of that strength. He sizes others up based on how they compare to his own moral achievement. Simon's love is conditional on a bar he sets based on his own gifts and strengths. If you measure up to my standards, 
there's acceptance and love. If you don't, there's exclusion and judgment. And one tragedy of this view of the world is that the circle of those that he is willing to love gets smaller and smaller as he grows more righteous and holy in his own eyes. And neither Jesus nor the woman make the cut in his books. Now, we, of course, all have strengths and gift sets, and our default mode is to do the same thing as Simon, to make the bar of our own performance the standard by which we assess and accept other people. You might not care how much money someone makes, but they earn your acceptance and respect through their concern for the poor and the environment. You might not care about another person's concern for the environment, but they become more lovable to you based on their work ethic in life. But when we primarily relate to one another on the basis of our strengths and holiness and achievements, we will inevitably do what Simon does here. We'll approach others with skepticism. Are they even worthy to receive my love? With hesitation? I'll wait until they they prove themselves to me. And with fickleness, they are in and they're out of your inner circle on a whim as soon as they don't meet the standards of acceptance, as soon as they don't attain the bar. sounds strange to say it out loud, but I think what Jesus wants us to ask from this story is how can we, individually and collectively, grow to become more like this publicly disgraced prostitute and less like this socially respectable and wealthy man? In other words, how do we grow a greater heart of love for God and for others as well. Well, Jesus, the final character, reveals the secret to that answer, the secret to love in his short but surgical parable. It's a truth that Simon can't deny once it's spoken, and it's one the woman has already grasped with her whole heart. It's the thing that makes Christianity unique among all the other voices out there in the world who also encourage us towards love. Jesus tells a story about two men who both owe money. 500 denarii would have been about two years wages. 50 denarii was something like two months wages. The first debtor owed a huge amount of money. The other, the second, was a lot, but it was on the verge of being manageable. The moneylender forgives both of these debts. And that, um, and, and by doing that, he, the, the moneylender personally bears the cost for each of these debts. Now notice this, forgiving is not ignoring. It's not sweeping something under the rug. The cost has to be paid by someone. Either the debtor or the lender has to bear the cost for that missing money, for the amount of damage done. And as in the parable, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has paid the cost. He, he's covered the damage. He, he bore the moral debt for our rebellion against God. It wasn't ignored. The cost was paid fully by the Prince of Heaven who never had a debt in his life. And the question this parable asked each of us this morning is how much did Jesus pay when he died for you? Was the debt huge? Unmanageable? Was it devastating? Or was your debt almost on the verge of manageable? Not really so bad. Given time, maybe even payable to the one you owed. Because Jesus says how you answer that question will also answer the question 
of how much you will ever be able to truly love God. Listen as Jesus explains the secret to growing in our love for God and others. Verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Um, N.T. Wright's translation of that verse says, so the conclusion I draw is this. She must have been forgiven many sins. Look how her great love proves it. You see, this woman's awareness of her need was, um, if it were small like Simon's, she never would have loved Jesus as much as she did. It's exactly her repentance for her deep brokenness and sin that opens the door of her heart to love God as much as she has. She has received his free and gracious forgiveness for all that she's ever done. Here is the secret of Christian love. This is it. You ready? We grow in love when we grow in our awareness and our repentance of our sin. We love more when we need more. I don't do this very often during sermons because as soon as charts and slides go up on a screen, I feel like I'm in a lecture hall back in college. But if you're a visual learner, I found this simple drawing to be a very helpful for me to understand this gospel secret about love. So you might find it helpful as well. Now, I'm no graphic artist. I apologize to all real artists or really anyone with any artistic sensibilities at all. My apologies in advance. Slide one. Here we are with our backpacks on our journey through life. And somewhere above us and beyond us is the knowledge that our life should really be about love. Everyone knows this is up there somewhere. Even Subaru understands life is about love. But if we're honest at all with ourselves, we also know we fall far short of that high calling. Whether it's our own standard of love or the calling given to us by God through his word, we just don't live up to full human flourishing. And the great gift of Christianity that so many of you have received and some of you are even considering here this morning is that God in Jesus has filled in all that we're missing and has given us full righteousness, full human love as a gift of free grace through his death and resurrection. For for by grace you've been saved, we read in in Ephesians, through faith, this is not your own doing, it's a gift from God. So now the question is, how do we grow into more of that love that God has already shown us? This is our question for the sermon. But even more, it's the question for this church. How are we going to be a church that grows in our love for God? What do we do? How do we act? Well, if you're like me, you think the process looks like this. And you were taught the process of growing as a Christian looks like this. Over time, as we look to God in faith, our... our, um, our graph trends upwards. We become better and better people, more righteous, more like him, more holy. Now we need to be careful here because certainly one of the promises of the gospel is that over time, as God's adopted children, we will take on more and more of God's family character. I'm not saying we don't grow in virtue or discipline or faith or any of that. This line is meant to represent something a little different than that. It's meant to show our own self-awareness of our moral standing before God. As a Christian, maybe some of you who have been a Christian for a long time, this, tr- this graph shows you putting more and more trust 
in your own moral progress through, through life, your own standing as a good and righteous person over time. That's what this means. And it's so easy for us to think this way, that the main sign or mark or indicator of our Christian growth is that we become better people. But of course, here's the problem with that. Slide four. The more we look at our own growing virtue as a basis for our relationship with God, the less we think we need the forgiveness that Christ has died to provide. The cross, instead of looming larger and growing sweeter over time, his forgiveness and his grace become less and less urgent, less and less necessary, less and less glorious. Our debt turns from an unmanageable 500 denarii to an almost manageable 50. Maybe we can get this done over time after all. And on top of all that, as we interact with other people on the basis of our own moral strength, we can't help but look down on those whose moral progress is just not tracking up quite as fast as our own. We don't want to be judgmental, but we can't help it. Listen to Tim Chester, who's a pastor in Britain. Whenever we look down on someone for being smelly or disorganized or lazy or emotional or promiscuous or socially inept or bitter, we're acting like graceless Simon. And if we look down on people for not understanding grace, then we're like graceless Simon. If you're thinking about how this applies to someone else, you're like graceless Simon. Simon has no sense of forgiveness because he has no sense of need. But the woman has a strong sense of her brokenness. She knows her life is a mess, and she sees Jesus as someone who accepts her anyway. So she has an overwhelming love for him, a love that risks social disgrace. Jesus is offering a totally new way to grow a heart of love, love not born out of our own moral strength, but out of our own moral weakness and a growing need for God's forgiving love. Here again is our trajectory of growth as Christians. But this line doesn't mean that we actually try to become worse people, even though the line is trending down. It's not that we have to go out of our way to find ways to sin and screw up our lives so that we can really feel what it's like to be in debt 500 denarii. No, this line is simply admitting that we already are worse sinners than we know. Right now, we're actually worse than we know we are. And growing up as a Christian means becoming aware of how deep the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus has already gone in our lives. Instead of our outward behavior being the primary indicator of our maturity and growth, a growing internal delight of what Jesus has done on our behalf becomes the central marker of a growing Christian. This path of, of growth um, assumes that we do not know, even now, the junk that resides in the basements of our own heart. It hasn't even yet been uncovered. And each layer we peel back, each year that God goes to work on us and he shows us another layer of sin and neediness and brokenness, it also assumes that God's grace is so expansive that his gift of salvation doesn't simply cover the sin you already know about. He has forgiven you even from the power of the sin that hasn't been uncovered yet. And growing as a Christian means growing in receiving the grace that God has already given you through Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul himself, you know, 
the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote a third of the New Testament, the one who planted churches across Europe, the one who had the faith to stand before government officials and even emperors and share the gospel at the cost of his imprisonment, beatings, and eventually his own life. That Paul, the Paul who was a better Christian than any of us in this room, called himself the worst sinner he knew. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. He wasn't being hyperbolic to prove a point. He was being honest. Paul was the worst sinner he knew because God had graciously shown him over time how deep his forgiveness really went in Paul's life. And out of an overflow of the love he had received from Jesus, he could pour out his love for God and others with an almost inexhaustible energy. Because as we've seen, the secret to growing in love is this. The more you've been forgiven, the more you will love. So how much have you been forgiven? I mean, would you describe yourself as a pretty good person, all things considered? If so, you'll be a pretty poor lover. Or are you a pretty broken and needy person who has been unconditionally accepted through the grace of Jesus and granted the freedom of resting in his love, no matter how much junk gets revealed and exposed and aired out in the cleaning out of your heart? If so, you will cling to Jesus's feet ferociously. You will love God so much and you will grow in your capacity to love those around you with greater and greater sacrifice and risk. So to land this plane, how do we live this out here at Grace Church? If this is our DNA, what does it look like in the real world? We have to figure this out together. But one thing I would offer is it looks like not only sharing the content of the gospel of grace, but also creating a culture of the gospel of grace at this church. That creating a culture where everyone is welcome, where where there's nothing that could exclude you because there's no such thing as perfect people. I've said this before, but this is not a museum for saints. This is a hospital for sinners. We expect there to be some carnage and we know that the great physician is up to anything that comes in through these doors. And what this does is it frees us to be honest about our own messiness, our fears, our failures. I mean, the gospel gives us an enormous amount of power to admit our flaws. And we will find um, not only a growing heart for God, but a much deeper connection and much more life-giving community with one another when we connect in our weaknesses and our need than if we only try to connect in our strengths and the basis of our giftedness. So this is a church where hurting people are welcomed, cared for, and shown the gospel. Whether they believe what we believe or not, this is a place where it's okay not to be okay because none of us are okay. And where we remind one another constantly of the great gifts of love and grace that we've already received in Jesus. The gospel of grace is that we are all worse off than we even thought, more sinful than we ever knew, but at the very same time, more loved and accepted in Christ than we could even imagine. That's the gospel of grace that can create a culture of grace in this church. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for um, the love that you have shown us through your son, Jesus. Help us to grow in that love by growing in a conviction and an awareness of our own sin and brokenness and neediness before you. But I do pray that that move downward would not be one um, that's filled with uh, sadness or grief, but it would just be an opportunity to throw the hearts or the doors and the windows of our hearts wide open to receive the fresh breath of your spirit that comes in and heals and shows grace and shows love. You have forgiven us much. Help us love much. Amen.